for as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinet, and today we're going to be talking about Revelation 2, verse 6, which is the last verse in the letter that John addressed to the ancient Ephesian saints. Now, you'll recall that last week we talked about verse 6, which was a discussion about the hatred that Jesus Christ has for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about the fact that uh, their practices or deeds are alive and well in the world today, where uh, sexual immorality and promiscuity run rampant, where people basically do whatever it is that they want and they're saved by grace and uh, uh, these t type of teachings. And so today, we're actually going to be kind of looking at the flip side of this coin, and that is for people who overcome those kinds of temptations of the Nicolaitans um, and overcome their deeds, they have the promise of eternal life, which is symbolically represented by the tree of life that we're going to be discussing in this verse. So we begin today with the one and only verse we'll be covering, Revelation 2, 7, which states, quote, He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Close quote. Let's begin specifically with the first part of this verse that says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. This is what's known as an epiphone. It's a kind of scriptural exhortation that calls upon the listener to give particular attention or heed to what has just been said, or some, on some occasions, what is about to be said uh, concerning some type of uh, admonition. Essentially, it's designed to kind of stir up listeners so that they pay more than ordinary attention to whatever it is is being said. Uh, I kind of analogize this to something I learned back, in, it was either in law school or one of my classes on continuing legal education about how you make sure that you keep the attention of the jurors where it needs to be placed. And uh, so the general saying is, if you've got a case that is strong on the facts, but weak on the law, then you pound on the facts. If you have a case that is strong on the law, but weak on the facts, then you pound on the law. <laughs> If you've got a case that is both weak on the law and weak on the facts, then you pound on the table. <laughs> and that's what this sort of is. It's, it's a, a, a statement that is pounding on the table to get our attention that you need to listen to this because this is important. So we can find this uh, type of uh, uh, epiphone in various different scriptures. Um, for example, we see it in Isaiah 55, 3, which says, quote, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear 
and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Close quote. Now, the, the ep epiphone part of that is really this, incline your ear and come unto me, hear and your soul shall live. And so we see this also illustrated in the various parables that were spoken by the Savior. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, where we have the parable of the sower, which is sometimes also referred to as the parable of the four kinds of soil. Uh, after the Savior gives the parable, he concludes in Matthew 13, 9, saying, quote, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Close quote. So at any rate, the, the concept is, is that in this particular verse, in Revelation 2, 7, the epiphone directs our attention to the promised blessings. And we find a similar exhortation in Revelation 1, 3, which says, quote, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand, close quote. Now, you'll notice that in this verse from Revelation 1-3, you have a situation where it's not only the concept of reading and or hearing the prophecy, the idea is the admonition that is implied uh, rather emphatically is that you also have to uh, keep the sayings that you're about to hear. So uh, that's uh, something that's also part of this, although it's not uh, expressly stated. So as we begin uh, Revelation 2.7, the nature of the exhortation in this epiphone is that Christ requires everyone to hear, and he directs everyone to hear what the Spirit speaks in the words, both written and those that will be read in the church at Ephesus. And uh, if we follow that admonition or that exhortation, then we get the promised blessings that are annexed to the reading and hearing of the letter that John has penned uh, with the words of the Savior. And so this same exhortation is found from Christ in all seven letters. I call it kind of the, the three musketeers exhortation. It's the all for one and one for all exhortation that is given in all seven letters. But essentially it directs attentions to the whole contents of the seven letters. And indeed, I think we kind of have to extend that because the letters are a, an integral part of the book of Revelation. It's really an or exhortation for us to hear what is in the seven letters as well as everything else that is in the uh, book of Revelation. And uh, the, this idea of those that have ears to hear kind of reflects this uh, Old Testament motif that there are many who had ears but were deaf to God's voice. And we call this selective hearing. It's a problem that we, <laughs> that we seem to have in my household where Jen sometimes accuses me of having selective hearing. And uh, probably six months or so, we went to an audiologist to get my ears checked and, and she went along and she wanted to see whether I really had selective hearing or whether my hearing was actually going bad. <laughs> Uh, and I guess the conclusion is I'm not wearing a hearing aid yet. And so the conclusion is, although my score was not that great, uh, I wasn't quite to the stage of needing a uh, something with uh, to help my ears and correct my hearing. 
<laughs> so at any rate, the, the short answer is that there's a, a possibility that there may be some selective hearing. When we were at the audiologist, uh, she was talking about that. She says, oh, yeah, that's a common problem. <laughs> So at any rate, but uh, the idea is is uh, we should all have spiritual ears that are sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. And uh, in the book of Revelation, this same epiphone is going to be repeated seven times in each of the seven letters. But there's actually a little bit of a pattern to it because in the first three churches, the exhortation to hear precedes the promise to the overcomer, and in the last four letters, the exhortation comes after the promise that has been made to the overcomer, and indeed, in those last four churches, or the last four letters to the uh, last four churches, these are the last words that are spoken uh, to those churches, and uh, ultimately how they uh, conclude. So I, I, you know, I've kind of gone back and I've tried to analyze uh, what the difference is. John loves patterns, and so the idea that we divide the seven into four and into three with an exhortation before and after the promises isn't unusual. It's it's fairly consistent with uh, how he operates and his modus operandi. But I I couldn't find any rhyme or reason as to why the first three were before and the last four were after the uh, promises and so uh, it's just one of those mysteries of the book of Revelation that are going to have to remain <laughs> remain a mystery and uh, it's a small point but uh, I did look at it I, I couldn't find any connection um, you know given various attributes of the letters and so on and so forth but anyway so let's move on talk a little bit going past the uh, the exhortation, which basically tells the uh, saints uh, what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Okay, and so this is the exhortation is to listen to what the Spirit is saying. Now, the Spirit, of course, refers to the Holy Ghost, and ghost uh, is something that essentially is equivalent to a spirit anciently. Uh, the Holy Ghost, or the Spirit, of course, is the third member of the Godhead. He is a personage of spirit who is in the form of a man. He doesn't speak for himself. He always testifies of the Father and Jesus Christ and is a witness for them. And he's truly a witness of all truth. And so his job is to convey to listening people, those that have ears, that are willing to listen, the mind and will of the Lord. And uh, this is uh, true in all cases. And so the Spirit is what inspires John's vision. Remember, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day um, back in Revelation chapter 1. And the consequence of being in the Spirit and having the message and truths of the prophecy and visions conveyed through the power of the Spirit uh, ultimately leads us then to the content of the seven letters as well as to the entirety of the book of Revelation. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that, quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, close quote. And so definitionally, if you have something that you're writing that is not inspired by the Spirit, then that cannot be Scripture. And by contrary view, uh, that which is inspired by the Spirit of God or the Holy Ghost 
can be considered scripture. And so even uh, within the church, we have what are known as the four standard works that are all things that are inspired uh, by God through the power of the Spirit. But to the extent that we have speakers in general conference speaking through the power and uh, influence of the Holy Ghost, that represents scripture. It's not the standard works, but it represents scripture as having been given by the inspiration of God. And to the extent that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, then that's definitionally what scripture is. So, you know, I guess we'd have to say the jury's out on my uh, my podcasts. Uh, I like to think that they're inspired by the spirit, but, you know, sometimes when we get off on some of these movie quotes and uh, crazy lawyer stories. You know, the jury's out on that one. So uh, I hope that you find them valuable. And I I like to think, and I certainly pray that uh, there's something that uh, are inspired by the Spirit for the purposes identified in 2 Timothy 3.16. So moving on to the next phrase in uh, verse 7, it says, uh, To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Now, in each of the seven letters to these seven churches, there is a promise of eternal life. And just not to get ahead of ourselves, but this promise of being able to eat from the tree of life is synonymous with a promise to receive eternal life. Um, And so what I would just want to say on this point is simply that in each of the seven letters, there is a promise of eternal life um, and by way of 12 different symbols and images to the overcomers. Uh, some people equate and say, well, there are seven promises of eternal life that match or correspond to the seven letters. But in fact, if you look carefully at uh, some of the letters, there's more than one image or symbol that is used to convey that promise of eternal life. So you count them all up and you end up with 12 symbols or images used to represent eternal life that are promised to overcomers in each of the seven churches. And for the Ephesians, the the particular image or promise is the tree of life, which is a clear symbol of eternal life. And the idea is is that uh, if you eat the fruit, you can live forever, and not just live forever, but live forever in an exalted state. And there's an important distinction, of course. And Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, actually makes that distinction between those that eat the fruit of the tree of life and those who are still in the celestial kingdom, but don't get to eat the fruit, but only get to eat the leaves of the tree. So there's some different kind of symbolism going on here in the book of Revelation that uh, adds some concepts and doctrinal truths to the, the idea of eating or partaking of the fruit from the tree of life. And we will get to those in due course, uh, and uh, not to be repetitive, um, I'm not going to go over it in any detail at this point. But go check out, eventually when I get to that point, <laughs> you could check out Revelation 22 two and figure out what the difference is between eating the leaves and eating the fruit of the tree of life. It, it kind of reminds me of a scene from the old Bambi movie from uh, the, the cartoon version where, you know, Thumpery's out uh, just eating the heads off all of the uh, the flowers and stuff. And he gets admonished by his mother because he's not eating the greens. <laughs> 
and that's kind of the way it is with eating the the uh, tree of life in uh, John's vision. You you can eat the fruit, uh, but you also uh, have the the greens. Uh, and Thumper was stuck by his mother t being told you got to eat the greens too. So at any rate, uh, now notice uh, as we talk about this uh, particular statement, and you'll find it in all seven letters, it tells us that overcomers will get to eat of the tree of life, or in the other letters, overcomers will get a certain blessing, all of which equate back to this concept of eternal life. But notice how we are not told what we have to do to overcome. And uh, it's just this kind of a, a blanket statement. And the reason why it, there's no particular detail given in this statement saying, for example, if you overcome Satan, if you overcome the beast, if you overcome the devil's kingdom, if you overcome your weaknesses of the flesh, if you, whatever it might be, we don't have any of those kind of added details. So it's this verb, you got to overcome, and it just stands by itself without any kind of other descriptive phrase to, to tell us what we're supposed to do. And the reason it doesn't is because everything leading up to this point uh, here with regard to this first letter to the Ephesians tells us what is involved in overcoming. In other words, you have to overcome the uh, the worldliness of the Nicolaitans um, and the description of everything that they did and everything that they were about. Um, this is what it means to overcome. And so what we get in the, the seven letters is basically this kind of universal description of everything that can go wrong in our lives and all the evils, uh, temptations, trials, tribulations that can overcome us, uh, those are the things that we ultimately have to universally overcome. So all we, all we really have to be told in this verse and seven other verses exactly like it are, if we overcome, we get the blessing of eternal life. And what that means is, it's what I've been talking about. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, and that applies also to the kinds of overcoming that we, living in the modern age, will have to overcome because the types of trials, tribulations, and evils that were faced by the saints anciently are but types and foreshadows for the kinds of types, the tribulations and trials that we're going to face in the modern world. And we're going to have some of our own circumstances that might differ somewhat factually and contextually. But if you get down to the kind of the bottom line, the lowest common denominator, the evils and the ills identified and expressed in these seven churches anciently are what we're facing today. And if we want to be overcomers, we have to do today what the ancient saints did anciently and learn from those that failed to overcome what the circumstances are um, awaiting us if we fail to overcome. So that's why you basically kind of get this, this blanket overcome. Uh, you're on your own to figure it out because there are lots of illustrations that have been given to us. Now, uh, Bruce R. McConkie had this to say, with specific reference to this concept of overcoming that's found in each of the seven letters. He said, quote, chapters two and three of Revelation contain counsel and commendation to the seven churches in Asia, and what is said applies in principle 
to all congregations of saints in all the world in all ages. In each instance, the promises given are conditioned upon the requirement that the recipients shall overcome the world. This mortal life is designed as a time of testing and trial, and he expects us to overcome, to conquer, to come off triumphant, to be victorious, to win the war with sin, even as he himself did. Close quote. And so uh, there you have his statement that I think is really good. Um, it's uh, something that uh, this concept of overcoming is uh, something that comes an allusion to both military and athletic uh, settings. This image of being uh, conquerors, having victories, that's the conquest persevering in the face of conflict and uh, hardship. And this is consistent uh, throughout the book of Revelation. I would even go so far as to say um, that it is a rather predominant and prevailing theme that you'll find throughout the book of Revelation. And it's something that kind of connects the seven letters uh, and the churches to the entire book and our future where we will have things that we have to overcome. We can't see events in our future and things that we specifically may have to overcome, but we can look back and see in the past uh, a vision of our future. And so as we overcome in our future, we receive the benefits and promises uh, of exaltation and eternal life, just as the ancient saints did in the past. So let's talk a little bit about the reward offered, the symbolism of the uh, tree of life. Uh, Adam Clark, um, a uh, theologian, uh, kind of says this is a kind of an allusion to the uh, conqueror of in the uh, Grecian games, where when you come off conqueror, you're triumphant, you win the race or whatever it is, uh, you're crowned with the leaves of some kind of tree. So he kind of likens it to having some kind of garland placed on your head, and, and that's what the allusion is to, and it, it could well be, I suppose, uh, but we have a better uh, symbol and that's existed since the time of the creation, and that, of course, is the, the tree of life itself. Now, the things that the Ephesians had to overcome in order to win this so-called garland or to be given uh, to eat of the tree of life was they had to overcome the false apostles in their midst who were who they tried and found to be liars from uh, from within the church itself. And I discussed this in my podcast, Discovering uh, discussing Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 on January 28th. And so you go back and take a look at that podcast to find out the kinds of things they had to overcome. They also had to overcome the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which are described in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, which I discuss on my podcast on February 4th of this year and so you can go back and take a look at that if you want to get more information about the things that uh, the Ephesians had to uh, overcome but the point particularly as it relates to the Nicolaitans was this concept that you can't eat the tree of life while at the same time 
trying to eat at the table of the Nicolaitans. And so the Nicolaitans were well known as having uh, violated the admonition against eating things sacrificed to idols and inviting worldly standards into their lives. So we can't eat at that table and still hope to eat uh, the fruit from the tree of life. Now Lehi, of course, uh, gives us our best description of what this fruit of the tree of life is like. And in 1 Nephi 8, 10 through 12, it talks about how this fruit is the most sweet above all that I have ever tasted. Yea, and I beheld that the fruit thereof was white to exceed all the whiteness that I had ever seen. And so all of these symbols tie in to uh, describe what it means to have eternal life. It's this sweet, uh, you know, I don't know what your favorite fruit is, but you should be thinking about it right now. <laughs> now and just uh, savoring the uh, the sweetness of whatever fruit it is and the whitest of white uh, all of these kind of images factor into helping us understand or give some concept to the uh, idea of eternal life so the uh, tree of life imagery uh, has a long history and uh, it's particularly relevant to the conditions in uh, Ephesus at the time of John's letter because uh, Ephesus was of course where the temple of Diana or Artemis was located and uh, her shrine was actually a tree and she was of course the goddess of fertility and so her devotees came to uh, Ephesus and were drawn to partake of her life-giving powers in the same way in the vision of uh, the Tree of Life from, uh, from Lehi, we see people on the straight and narrow path making their way to uh, be able to partake of the tree and receive of its life-giving power. So there's a, a, a definite kind of similarity that exists. And the concept of the Tree of Life um, and the imagery is found in many, many ancient cultures and so both the rabbins and the Mohammedans had what was called the vine known as the probation tree. In the uh, Zend Avesta they had a tree of life called the death destroyer. The Hindu tree of life grows out of a great seed in a large body of water and it has these these three branches crowned with a sun representing creation, preservation, and renovation. Uh, in the Buddhist religion, uh, we have the imagery of uh, people sitting in meditation under a tree that has three branches. Now, coming a little bit more close to home, the Old Testament, of course, has many references to the Tree of Life, uh, beginning with the creation, the Garden of Eden story, and then continuing on through uh, items and uh, articles such as the menorah, which is a representation of the Tree of Life. Switching over to the Book of Mormon, we have Lehi's vision of the Tree of Life, which is a representation of the love of God and eternal life. And so I'm going to throw up another image here uh, that uh, is showing Stella 5. Uh, this is a uh, large steel that was discovered in 1941 
in Izapa, Mexico, near the Guatemalan border, and it weighs about one and a half tons. So the image you're looking at uh, belies, of course, the, the magnitude of what this thing really is. And the, uh, the carvings on this stone are dated to roughly 300 to 100 BC. Now, uh, a Mormon archaeologist by the name of Dr. M. Wells Jakeman connected Stella 5 to the Tree of Life. And for those of us who are just kind of novices, if you're looking at the image here and you look at it, you know, I'm no expert on it, but yeah, that looks a lot like it could be the Tree of Life. And you've got all of these images of people and there are even animals in it and uh, worshiping at the tree. And uh, you can see what appear to be some of these uh, uh, religious or ritualistic headdresses and stuff like that. So I look at that and I mean, I'm no archaeologist, but uh, yeah, I can see the connection between that uh, Stella 5 carving and the Tree of Life description uh, that is given in the Book of Mormon. And so uh, Dr. Uh, Jakeman uh, published uh, an article in uh, some scholarly archaeological journals in 1958. And uh, uh, of course, uh, it's not surprising there, there were some expected opposition in archaeological circles, mostly because we don't want to connect that to uh, this book that uh, is viewed as scripture because we don't think it's scripture and so there shouldn't be a connection <laughs> at any rate. So that's that's uh, a little bit about uh, some of the imagery and background of the uh, Tree of Life. Um, most fundamentally, of course, we recognize the uh, Tree of Life as one of the trees that were present in the uh, Garden of Eden, which is also known as the Paradise of God. And up until the fall of Adam, of course, Adam and Eve uh, were free to partake of the fruit of the Tree of Life, which had the power of everlasting life because they themselves were immortal from the time of their creation. Death did not exist prior to the fall of Adam. However, once that transgression occurred, Adam and Eve were forbidden from eating the fruit of the tree of life because then they would have the potential to live forever in their sins. And so they were prevented thereafter um, and kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Cherubim was placed to guard the way, etc., etc., uh, so that that possibility could never occur. But here we see in Revelation 2.7 the promise of a restored paradise and a promise of the restored eating from the tree of the fruit of life. For, and uh, so this comes through the power of the atonement, of course. And so the atonement of Jesus Christ has the effect of reversing the consequences of the fall, making it possible again for people to partake of the tree of life and to live forever. And not just to live forever, but to enjoy exaltation and eternal life, which is the type of life that God lives. All right. So let's talk just a, for a second here a little bit about the uh, this concept of paradise. Uh, there's a specific reference to it here in this verse. And paradise is equated, of course, with the Garden of Eden. Uh, but the, the, the word itself is of uh, oriental derivation, and it's found in several different uh, Eastern languages. For example, I don't speak any of these languages, and so I, all I can do is kind of phonetically pronounce uh, some of the words, the same of, of Greek and Hebrew. I mean, I pronounce the, the Greek and Hebrew words as I talk about them uh, phonetically, and, uh, you know, some of these Greek scholars out there probably say, what did he just say? 
<laughs> and so that's okay. But at any rate, in Sanskrit, the word paradesha or paradisha uh, has reference to an elevated land or something that is cultivated like a garden would be. In Armenian, the word pardes means a garden, something that you would find around a house which with grass and herbs and trees, uh, kind of a pleasant place. And then uh, the Hebrew word for pardik and the Greek paradisos uh, has a specific meaning of a pleasure garden and parks. And so as we think about the use of the word here in Revelation 2.7, keep in mind that the Lord is promising that those people that overcome will be able to partake of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And so we're not talking here about the Garden of Eden and the tree in the Garden of Eden. We have to fast forward ahead to a promise that is being made concerning paradise as it will exist in the celestial kingdom. And so here, the concept of paradise denotes heaven or a richly cultivated park or garden with Eden essentially being but a foreshadow of the type of paradise that will exist in the celestial kingdom post-resurrection. In short, we're talking here about the celestialized earth. But keep in mind also that you have different stages of paradise in the uh, time of our existence. So we have in uh, the Garden of Eden, you had paradise that was of a, a terrestrial nature before the earth fell to its uh, telestial condition with the fall of Adam. When you go into the post-mortal spirit world, assuming you have qualified for celestial glory, your disembodied spirit will go to what is known as celestial paradise, which I'll be describing in much more detail when we get to uh, Revelation chapter 4. And so, again, it is the, the, the concept is that uh, you have to think that the conditions in the post-mortal spirit world in paradise are exactly like that. This beautiful surroundings, peace, and uh, a, pr a pretty great place to be even before the resurrection. And then lastly, as I mentioned before, you have life on the glorified earth, which is also paradisiacal in its nature after the resurrection that, however, will be added upon with even additional glory. So that's a little bit of a discussion of all the elements and phrases that we find in uh, Revelation uh, 2 verse 7. I thank you for listening, subscribing, sharing. Thanks to Jenna for uh, her technical help. Uh, tomorrow we uh, have a new podcast coming. We're going to be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 and this concerns the letter that was written to the saints in Smyrna. Now uh, Smyrna was uh, a letter that is the shortest in uh, content, but because we're covering three verses tomorrow, uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. So uh, I look forward to seeing you there, and uh, hopefully we can uh, learn some more stuff about uh, these letters from John in the book of Revelation.